Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. For the rest of us, we're going to be continuing on our series entitled The Rabbi. It's a study out of the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the third week. If you missed the first two weeks, I do want to encourage you. Uh, they are all online. You can go to our website, livingstones.cc, and there's podcasts there. We'll give you a lot of the background information that we've been talking about. It's sort of had a Jewish Hebraic flavor. We've been kind of talking about the original context and setting by which Jesus would have launched his rabbinic ministry and then trying to figure out what that means to us 2,000 years later in South Bend, Indiana. And so we began the very first week by discussing the reality that Jesus was viewed not as an ordinary run-of-the-mill rabbi, but a rabbi with smicha, which is the Hebrew word for authority. You kind of almost got to spit when you say it. That's how you do it. Smicha, authority. When he talked, when he finished, everyone around went, man, that guy is not like any other rabbi we have listened to. He has real authority. And then last week, we talked about the talent that Jesus would have worn. It was his prayer shawl and the expectation that when the Messiah showed up, there would be healing in the wings, which were the four corners of his prayer shawl and the tassels that were attached to it. And that's why people wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' cloak. What's referring to is his tassels, and there was healing. And so we looked at the healing power of Jesus and his ministry and looked at a lot of the stories in Matthew and even how Jesus used healing to bring people who were on the outside on the inside by way of the kingdom of God. But this morning I want to shift and look at another aspect of Jesus' rabbinic ministry, and that is to take a look at what would be the rabbi's Talmudim. So we've talked about his smichak, his authority. We've talked about his talent, his prayer shawl. And this morning, I know it's a lot of Hebrew, we're going to talk about his Talmudim. Now, Talmudim means disciples. That every rabbi in the first century had disciples. And I think for us, understanding the relationship and the nature between a rabbi and his disciples should open up for our own understanding what it means then when we say we're disciples of Jesus or we're followers of Jesus or we're Christians, which, by the way, all three of those things are synonymous in my mind, that we are followers of Jesus, we're disciples, we're Christians. But the problem I see is 2,000 years later, our understanding of discipleship is so weak and so watered down that it seems that we at times have virtually no concept of what it means to actually follow after Jesus. And so I hear things like this, that today people think that they're Christians simply because they prayed some prayer at a church camp when they were 12 years old and and maybe since then have no idea how the teachings and interpretations of Jesus matter or even apply to life, but they said the prayer, so I'm in. I think a first century disciple of Jesus has no understanding of this concept at all. No one followed Jesus by inviting Jesus into their heart. That just didn't take place in the first century by way of being a Talmudine. Or today, people think they're disciples of Jesus because they were christened as a baby in a beautiful church and maybe on a good year they go with their family to Christmas and Easter. But when it comes to this whole, you mean like on a daily basis thing with Jesus, that is another story altogether. Or today, people think that they're Christians because they simply live in America. And especially if you're from Tennessee, you probably feel this. Can you, you vote a straight ticket in the Republican Party and you listen to Carrie Underwood's Jesus Take the Wheel in your pickup truck, which, by the way, has a Jesus is my co-pilot bumper sticker and that guy, little guy that's peeing on Jeff Gordon. That's on the same <laughs> bumper sticker. I'm going to guess that a first century disciple, when they hear what we think or what we understand by way of discipleship, that they would at best get a good chuckle out of it or at worst 
be horrified. And I think the list of understanding of what a disciple is or a Christian or a follower of Jesus, which, by the way, I mean, those are all three words, synonymous. I think we could probably write a list just as long as as many people are in here what we think that means. We could say, oh, I'm a Christian. I mean, we pray before every meal, so right, I'm in. Or we say things like, I'm a good person. I mean, I try to be good. I try to do the right thing, so I'm a Christian. Or I got dunked in a baptismal celebration that the church had, and so I'm a Christian. Or I go to church on Sundays, or I volunteer my time, or I give money to the church. Dude, come on. When you give money to church, you are in the club. Or I read through a devotional book every day. Or when I'm at work, I like to use Christian language a lot and phrases. I think people really appreciate that. And, and I attend Bible studies to get more information or knowledge. Or, hey, listen, when I'm in the car, I listen to WFRN, that pulse station. I mean, so that I've got to be in because that's what I do. Or I read my kids a Bible story from their cartoon Bible every night. Or even this, I assent to a set list of beliefs, including the one that Jesus is the Son of God. Which, as a side note, you do know demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? But they're not disciples of Jesus. Those are different things. Now, here's a qualifier. You need to hear me say this out loud. I'm not opposed to these things, right? Don't hear me say I'm against giving to the church or attending church or volunteering your time or doing good things and trying to be. I'm not opposed to those things. I'm for those things. All I'm trying to say is I'm not sure that they in themselves equal what the first century would have understood to be a Talmudim of Rabbi Yeshua. There's a different meaning and concept. And the best analogy I can think of to illustrate this idea is this. Follow, follow along with me. Let's just say that I really, really, really wanted to be a Marine. Right? Now, I've never been a Marine, but let's just say that I've always wanted to be a Marine, and so I really want to be a Marine. And so one night, under great conviction, I just bow my head, and I sincerely state my intentions to want to be a Marine, and then I finish it by saying three times, Semper Fi, Semper Fi, Semper Fi. And then I look back up, and I go, I'm a Marine. Like, right, does that make me a Marine? No, it's absurd, isn't it? And could you imagine the conversation you'd have with somebody who's actually a Marine? Like, Oh, really? Well, where'd you do boot camp? Well, I mean, I didn't really do boot camp. I mean, well, we mean in boot camp. Well, well, where were you stationed at? I mean, I wasn't really stationed anywhere. I mean, well, then how in the world are you a Marine? Well, I bowed my head and I closed my eyes and I said I wanted to be a Marine and ended with three times a Semper Fi. I mean, right? The Marine's going to go, you're an idiot. That's what he's going to say. I mean, you're not a Marine. Or if being a Marine, let's say I went to the barber and I said, I need you to give me that Marine haircut, which, you know, easier nowadays than it used to be for me. But I mean, cut my hair like a Marine. And then I go and I buy T-shirts with the Marine logo on it. And I wear it all the time, the USMC. Like I wear it with pride. I mean, does that make me a Marine? No, it's absurd, right? That would be, that would be absurd. Or what if wanting to be a Marine, I attended two events a year, every year, faithfully. I don't ever miss it. When the Marine Corps sponsors that mud run, I'm always there. And then at Christmas time, you know they have that Toys for Tot thing? I always donate a toy to the Toys for Tot sponsored by the Marine Corps. Does those two events annually make me then a Marine? No, it's absurd. And to try to have that conversation with a real Marine and that, they would just think, dude, you're, you're an idiot. And sometimes I wonder if our assumptions of discipleship in the 21st century, if, this, if actually described to a disciple of Jesus in the first century, if it wouldn't sound just this goofy to someone who gave up their former life and identity to be a Marine, to someone who went through the rigors of not just boot camp, but military life and training, to someone who had to learn a new language and a new culture and a new style and a new manner, to someone who had to suffer through the harsh circumstances and training, for somebody to come along and say, well, I got a buzz cut. I mean, come on. I, should be. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. It'd be just as ridiculous as if, let's say, I decide that I really in my heart wanted to be a 
black belt in Taekwondo. It's in my heart of hearts. And so I'm talking to somebody else, and I just say, I have decided I am a black belt in Taekwondo. You are? Yeah. Well, what, where'd you learn? You? He goes, I, I mean, like what dojo? Who's your teacher? I, I didn't really study anywhere. I just went and got this canvas black belt. It looks really good on my clothes. And so I've decided I'm a black belt in Taekwondo. I mean, I mean that would be absurd, wouldn't it? I mean, I don't get to just wake up and declare one day, I am a professional opera singer, right? You are? Yeah. Wow. I mean, where'd you study? Like, what's your background? And did you go to Juilliard? I mean, I didn't actually go to school or study. I just, I, I got that three tenor CD, and I love it. I listen to it all the time, and I sing in the shower, and thus I'm a professional opera singer. I mean, that, we would recognize that to be absurd. In the same way, if we said, I'm a follower of Jesus, I am a disciple, a Talmudim of Jesus, Yeshua, imagine them responding with, so how then are you applying that teaching concerning the need to change, be more like a child, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says that? Yes, Jesus says that. Well, what about the one where he says, you know, if you are even angry with your brother or sister, you'll be subject to judgment. Like, I'm not supposed to be angry? Jesus said that? Yeah, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said. Or what, okay, what about the one where Jesus says, if you want God to forgive you, you need to forgive other people. He said that? I mean, I mean and that's, I mean, it would be fair for somebody to say, you're not really a Talmudim of Jesus. Because if you, that's what it means to be a disciple, that we are applying. Now, hang with me here, because I know my tone is a little snarky, and I don't think I mean it be, at least in any way that undermines the cause of Christ. But I think this cuts to the very heart of why the church today oftentimes doesn't look anything like Jesus. Because we've forgotten what it means to truly be a follower and disciple of Jesus. Now, let me go all the way back to a few cultural things about Jesus' ministry and him calling disciples. One, let's just begin with some background regards to Jesus' location and place as a rabbi. Now, Jesus was born in the city of what? Where was he born? Anyone know? Okay, the two people who know. Where was Jesus born? <laughs> Bethlehem. Thank you. I'm getting nervous as a pastor. Really? These people don't know Bethlehem. Like, there's songs about it. Every, I mean, okay, come on. We know Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem. So he's born in Bethlehem, but then his family moves to another city, and it's actually where Jesus is raised. So Jesus is raised in what town? Anyone know? You guys are geniuses. Nazareth, right? So Jesus graduates from Nazareth High School, and he goes off to college. And when he graduates from college, he moves back, then starting his career. Now, this is a little bit difficult, and, and they, no one else knew it at the 9 o'clock and 10.30, so we'll, I'll try it here. He graduates from college, and he moves back to another city. Did anyone know where he moves to? Oh! <gasps> Beth, I should have like something for you. Here. No, no, okay. yeah, he moves back to Capernaum is where, so he graduates from college, so to speak, and he moves back to Capernaum. This is where Jesus lives when he launches his rabbinic ministry and his rabbinic work. And why does he choose Capernaum? Because it's right on the Sea of Galilee and it has a lot of beaches and Jesus is totally into the flip-flops and, and beach volleyball. True story. Capernaum serves as a military post for the Romans. So the, you got to imagine the city of Capernaum, like the military, has a military post for the Romans. So imagine if you would any other city in either our country or the world where there would be a United States base, a military base. on That's sort of the dynamic that would be at work within the city of Capernaum. And it stood along the busy international trade center route called the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. And you're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything? But let me tie it together, at least in the Gospel of Matthew. 
The reason why it's important that Jesus lives here at the way of the sea is because 650 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah was going to live by the way of the sea. And Matthew picks this up, and he even records when he's reading Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, he goes, this is Jesus. This is the rabbi. This is referring to him. And that's why Matthew will write in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. So Matthew's putting this together, that his rabbi, Yeshua, who lives in Capernaum, is fulfilling the messianic prophecies of Isaiah. Now, here's what you also need to know. In Capernaum, there are a lot of blue-collar workers who worked in a trade. They were called tectons. Tectons. Now, tectons we translate in the English as carpenters. And typically when you say carpenter, you think of like woodworking, which could be involved in that, but most tectons worked with stone. And so Jesus, by way of his family trade, what he did for a living, what his father Joseph did for a living is he typically worked with stone and cut stone and worked with stone. So he was a living stoner. That's what Jesus was a li- And so that's what Jesus did by way of occupation. And the reason why is because once a volcanic lake, the Sea of Galilee now left large deposits of volcanic, volcanic rock, or basalt is what it's called, in the surrounding area. And I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I read this in my research. And Jesus is what he would be doing. And Capernaum served as a convenient base for Jesus' ministry around the Sea of Galilee because it had a variety of people who lived. I mean, all sorts of people lived there. It wasn't like they're all the same kind. I mean, secular people, religious people, zealots lived there, secular Jews lived there, all in the same area because of the international trade route. And this is where Jesus launches his life-changing message that the kingdom of God is present. Now, if you remember, we've been talking about the last two weeks, when people heard Jesus preach, when he got done, they all thought, this dude is not like any other rabbi we've heard. Like, he's got real smirk, I mean, authority. And we've, we've heard stories, in fact, we've even seen him heal people. I mean, I talk to crazy stories that we've never heard about or seen before. And so this is kind of the, the notoriety of Jesus as it's starting to come around. And so what happens is, now, here's what happened. This is where he launches his rabbinic ministry and where he gets Talmudim. Now, like other rabbis of his day, which means Jesus was not the only guy who had disciples. Like other rabbis would call Talmudim disciples. And here's the deal. A disciple's deepest desire was was to follow the rabbi so closely that they would start to think and act like him. The goal of the disciple was to be just like the rabbi, the teacher. You wanted to act like them, think like them, speak like them, eat like them. Whatever they responded in life is how you wanted to respond in life. It wasn't like it is today where you've got a classroom full of kids and you've got a teacher up front and they're lecturing and they're kind of downloading information and so they could pass the standardized test. To be a Talmudim was to, it was a total life immersion. It wasn't like from 8 o'clock to 3.30. I mean, it was like your life now is spent immersed in the life of the rabbi. And that often meant that you would travel together and you, you weren't just getting an, it. It was you were going to become in thought, in behavior, in manner, in speech, in response, just like the rabbi. And the way it worked is like this. And you had to be a boy. So, sorry, girls. So you, you were out. You had to be a boy. But with Jesus, he flips this around, by the way, just so you know. But with a boy, he would come up, he would approach a rabbi and ask the following question. May I follow you? And in, in essence, what he's saying is, do I have what it takes to be like you? 
And what would happen is the rabbi then would size him up, ask him some questions, and decide whether to, to, to take him as a disciple, as a Talmud, or to send him off to learn a trade. So that was your options. And every Jewish boy growing up wanted to follow a great rabbi. Like, we follow the greatest. That was what your dream was, to follow a great rabbi. And so you'd go to a rabbi, may I follow you? And if he thought you could cut it, then you got in. If not, you need to, you need to go on and go ahead and find a trade and work in because you're not going to be able to follow me. And often, though, it would mean that you would leave your relatives and friends and you would travel the country with the rabbi. And you see this in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus is always on the move, right? And then his disciples, they went here, and then they went there. and they went here. They're just, Imagine hooking up with a teacher and traveling the country from California, just walking all the I mean, That's sort of what it would be like in terms of following after Jesus or any rabbi in the first century. A Talmud followed the rabbi everywhere, often without knowing or even asking where they were going. He rarely left the rabbi's side for fear that he would miss a teachable moment. And he watched the rabbi's every move, noting how he acted and thought about a variety of situations. The Talmudim trusted their rabbi completely. They worked passionately to incorporate his actions and words in their own life. Again, their deepest desire was to follow them so closely that they would start to think and act like him. Now, let me give you two unique things about Jesus as rabbi compared to the other rabbis of his day. Number one is this. Usually it was the student who approached the rabbi. But Jesus flips this, and he's the one that goes out and selects his own Talmudim, his own disciples, right? Like Matthew would never approach Jesus. Like Matthew would never go, hey, can I follow you? Because he knows I'm a tax collector, I'm a sinner, I hang out with these kind of people. There's no way that a spiritual rabbi is going to let me be a student. So he would never approach. And it's Jesus who takes the initiative and looks at Matthew and says, I want you to follow me. And when he says, follow me, they understood that not to be a, hey, let's go hang out for a while, but no, that we're going to enter into this rabbi-disciple relationship. And often then they would leave everything. And I thought this was strange as a kid. Like when I read the Gospels, and like they, the fishermen would be on the boat, and Jesus walks up and says, follow me. And then they drop their nets and their boats, and they leave their family. I always thought, that is a strange response. I'd be like, who are you, and what are we doing? I mean, like I'd have like a list of questions. But when you understand the idea of the Talmudim and how they responded to a rabbi's invitation, it makes sense that you leave, you drop your nets and your boat, you leave everything. It was a sign of commitment and surrender to the rabbi. But second, and the thing that's most remarkable to me is, Jesus selects a group of men to be disciples that would have been laughable. I mean, no clear-thinking rabbi would have picked a single one of these guys that Jesus does. Like, None of them would make, they wouldn't even be second string or third string. They wouldn't even be considered. Fishermen do not become disciples of famous rabbis because fishermen work with dead fish and they're considered dirty and beneath them, so to speak, religiously. And so they were kind of the outsiders. They were not considered the cream of the crop, and that's exactly who Jesus picks. In fact, even others note this. When you get to the book of Acts, there's some miracles, and they get brought in for investigation and it says that they know the kind of men that hung out with Jesus. It's in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Okay? It's unschooled. Or, do you know what the Greek word is here? It's idiotes. Do you know what English word we get from the Greek word idiotes? Idiots! What they note is, these guys are idiots. <laughs> Yet they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Jesus picked idiots to follow him, and that should be good news for us. <laughs> now, I'm telling you, really, as living stoners, this should be really good news that Jesus passes over the cream of the crop, and he settles on people who really, we get it. 
And then Jesus turns them around and he changes the course of history. Twelve men called to be Talmudim changes the course of history. It changes everything because they've been with Jesus. And this is what it means to be a Talmudim of Jesus. And every first century Jew would know that, of course, the scriptures have authority over their lives and every aspect of their life. It would be, if a rabbi ultimately agreed to a would-be disciple's request, here's what's understood about that. What that means is, as a disciple, you are agreeing to totally submit then to the rabbi's authority in all areas of interpreting scriptures for life. This was the cultural given for all observant Jewish young men something that they wanted to do. They surrendered to the authority of God's word as interpreted by his rabbi's view of scripture, which meant in the end, total commitment and total submission was required. Total commitment and total submission. And Jesus himself says this very explicitly in his teachings. He doesn't give us any wiggle room. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, I mean, right? I mean, Jesus, Jesus tells us, listen, you have to die to yourself and carry a cross if you want to be my disciple." I mean, he'll say, you need to count the cost because if you don't hate your mother and your father and your wife and your children more than me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus doesn't mean like literally hate. It's a word that means to love less than, meaning priority-wise. What Jesus is saying is, it's going to be all of me or nothing. It is, to, be, to follow after me is total surrender, total commitment. He'll say in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law, you hear that? Somebody who taught the law. A teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It's a teacher of the law saying, I want to be one of your Talmudim. I want to be a disciple of you. And Jesus goes, you don't know what you're talking about. This is a, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, he doesn't have any place to lay his head. And then another disciple comes up and says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Right? I just let me quick have a funeral, take care of all the, left, the final arrangements, and then I'll be back to follow you. He didn't say I wouldn't follow you, just let me take care of this. And Jesus said, verse 22, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Are you? Just a, it's just a funeral, right? There was a girl sitting over here at 1030. When I read that out loud, she went, really? I mean, that's the shock you should feel in Jesus' response. Oh, no, I mean, we're talking total commitment here. Now, I don't want to jump gospels, but I like how Luke words it, the same, the same teaching in Luke. In chapter 9, verse 61, 60 says, another one says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Like, I just want to say goodbye to mom, right? It's not that I don't, I'm not going to follow you. I just, let me quickly say goodbye. And Jesus says this in response. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, what you just see is, oh no, this is, to be a Talmudim of Jesus is not about giving up an hour and five minutes on a Sunday morning once a week. It's about total commitment and total surrender to the teachings and interpretations of scripture of our rabbi, Yeshua, Jesus. There is no understanding that you could follow Jesus with a qualifier, with a but. I mean, there is no concept that, I mean, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I still, I mean, I still want to do what I want to do with my girlfriend, if you know what I mean, in spite of your teachings. I mean, Jesus has no, oh, no, no, listen, if you're going to follow after me, this is what it requires. I mean, there's no sense that you can say to Jesus, hey, I'm good with this whole Sunday morning thing. In fact, I kind of like it. I feel better leaving church. I kind of have a ooh, warm fuzzies every time I feel good about myself. But like the whole Monday to Friday thing, though, like with my coworkers, that's a little embarrassing. Can we kind of keep there? It could be like on the down. I mean, just, no, there's no buts with me in this. It's total commitment, total surrender. For Jesus, there's no sense that, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. In fact, I like most of your teachings. Like, they're kind of cool. Like, I I really like it, but the whole money thing, like how I'm supposed to use and view money, I would rather not that part of my life kind of be submitted to your authority as rabbi. That for Jesus, no, no, that's not how it's going to work. 
See, you knew who were disciples of Jesus because they were in process of looking like Jesus. See, if the world sees us as Christians and they see that we're no different than anybody else who are, who's not following Jesus, that should be a problem for us. It, it just should. That they should recognize, and I'm not saying we're perfect. Listen to me, because it's important you hear this too. I'm not saying we're perfect. Like we, we all screw this up. Like every one of us, we botch up the teachings of Jesus and how to interpret it. But, but what, I, what it means to be a, a Talmudim, though, a disciple is, no, but we're, we're, we want, we're headed this direction. Like I know I still get angry and I blow it, and I, I, I know I still struggle in this area, and I, I'm, I'm not walking on water yet. And I, but, I, but I know that my heart is moving in this direction as a Talmudim. Jesus' teachings do matter to me. They're important to me, and I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to figure out how to apply this to my life. In fact, I think all the letters of the New Testament that the apostles wrote to individuals and to churches is just this, to try to wrestle through how do you take the teachings of Jesus and apply it to our present circumstances. Like, and so Paul will do this when he writes to the church at Corinth. He recognizes, yeah, they got this issue where you've got a couple that, that they're married and only one of them has decided to follow Jesus. So what do you do with the other spouse who doesn't believe? What, what happens in that situation? And so Paul takes the teachings of Jesus, what he knows about Jesus, and then he applies it to that situation. He says, here's what you should do. Like, if the spouse is willing to stay with you, then you should stay with them. But if they want out because you're going to follow after Jesus, then let them go, and you're free too. And so he's trying to apply the teachings of Jesus. The, the disciples would wrestle with the Word of God. It, it, it wasn't like they didn't know the scriptures, but how do you apply it in the different context you find yourself in? And so you would sit down with your rabbi, you would discuss, listen, I know that on Sabbath we're not supposed to do any work, but can I light a candle at least? And what's interesting is every rabbi interprets it differently. In fact, even today, it depends on the rabbinic teeth, like the synagogue behind us, it, they wrestle through these questions. So just for example, like Caddy Corner here is Jim Thole lives across the street, Caddy Corner, and right across the street is a rabbi who teaches at the synagogue. They actually pay Jim Thole every Saturday to come over and flip their light switches on because they consider it to be work on the Sabbath. See how they interpret? I mean, that's how that works towards interpretation. And, and what happens is the rabbi in the end would give their final authoritative decision on, in this matter, this is what the Word of God says. They would say, can I divorce my wife if she does this or if she does that? And what Jesus does is he comes in with his authoritative teaching on this matter. Or they would ask the rabbi, and they'd have a good debate and a good discussion about it in terms of, listen, if I know paying taxes to the government will be used even to oppress our own people, don't I have a right to withhold taxes? And Jesus will come in, and he'll address this matter. And in the end, the rabbi will give his authoritative teaching, and we as disciples, as Talmudim, will have to comply because we are submitting ourselves to the authority of the rabbi. To say that you are a disciple in the name of Yeshua means that you're surrendering your life to Jesus' way of interpreting scriptures, and as a result, we conform our life behavior to his interpretations. Again, does that mean we're perfect? No. But it does mean when he says to love our enemies, Jesus does not assume that will be for us optional. And if you aren't interested in applying that the teachings of Rabbi Jesus to your life, and let's at least be honest in saying that you're not a disciple. You might be a fan of Jesus, but that's a different thing than a disciple. You might be an admirer of Jesus, but that's different than being a disciple. You could even think highly of Jesus, but that's a totally different thing than saying, oh no, I am a disciple, a Talmudim of Jesus. Because a disciple, even if they're stumbling in it, is interested in living out the teacher and rabbi's instructions.
And so it goes back for us in terms of, well, what's Jesus' central message? And this isn't for us a mystery, because Jesus tells us. He talks about more than anything else. And what he talks about is the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, what it looks like when God gets his way. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus talks about that more than anything else. So I've given a few homework assignments, like uh, week one, I get uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Let me assign, if I could, another one. It's stories that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God, and there's a lot of them in Matthew. Like, and we call them parables is the word we use for it. They're parables, and they're Jesus' way of, let me tell you a story that will help you understand what the kingdom of God is like. And if, if we're following after him, we should know these. Like, these should be important to us. And so let me assign, if you've got a pen, maybe write these down real quick. Matthew 13, read the whole chapter. The whole chapter is full of stories that Jesus tells of this is what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. And then if you flip over a couple chapters, in chapter 18, there's a few more. In chapter 20, there's a few more. A few more in 21, 22, and then all of chapter 25. All of chapter 13, a few in 18, 20, 21, 22. It's like the Powerball. Anyone win last night? No? Okay. All going to work tomorrow? Okay. Matthew 13, the whole chapter. Chapters 18, 20, 21, 22, and then all of chapter 25, the parables of Jesus. And listen to how he explains what the kingdom of God is like. Now, let, let me conclude with this. Here's where the rubber meets the road for us, so to speak. If, if you're realizing, like, in the moment that, oh, so it wasn't just about praying Jesus into my heart at church camp when I was 12 years old, and that maybe there's more to this Talmudine thing than I thought. I, I mean, I'd start by saying, I'm sorry that somebody didn't better explain what it meant to be a follower of of Jesus. But you do need to know, at least biblically, from the teachings and perspective of Matthew, this is what it means to be a disciple. And because of sometimes repentance is in order, and this is the case all the time. Like, for me, it's a continual act of repenting when I decide to give my life to other teachings or interpretations, and it happens all the time, from a peer group to Hollywood to a particular culture to maybe your parents. You have to go, oh yeah, I see I'm headed this way, but Jesus is actually taking me this direction as a disciple, and sometimes I have to repent to get back in there. But what that will ultimately mean is that my life is trying to exactly mirror what Jesus' life would look like if he were me. And this is an important distinction to me, because sometimes we go, well, you should be like Jesus, but you're thinking, well, Jesus wasn't married, didn't have kids, he has a different job. I mean, it's just hard to relate. So here's, I'd flip the question, I'd do it like this. What would Jesus be like if he were you? If he had your life, how would he live it? If Jesus were married to my wife, what kind of a husband would he be? How would he treat her? How would he respond to her? How would he speak to her? That's what it means for me to be a disciple of Jesus. If Jesus were raising my three children, Isaac and Caleb and Alexandria, what kind of a father would he be? Right? I mean, he'd be just like me, right? Caleb, tell me. Amen. Amen, Dad. No? No. All right. Didn't get that. Okay. Right? But that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If Jesus had your bank account, what would he do with it? And don't over-spiritualize. We're talking, oh, he'd probably give all his money away to the poor. I mean, well, now he's got a wife and three kids. He's not, right? But we have to ask these questions of, if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, living my life exactly after him, these things matter. If he had your job, let's say tomorrow morning he wakes up and he's going, he is you going to your job, how does he treat his fellow employees? How does he treat management? What kind of conversations does he have in the break room? What does he complain? I mean, these are the questions that we need to ask ourselves if we're going to be true disciples of Jesus. Or let's say you're a manager. If Jesus is in management, how does he treat his employees? How does he treat those around us? These are the questions that matter for us because they ultimately dictate what it means for us by way of discipleship to Jesus. And the good news is Jesus' teachings are finite, meaning... We don't have volumes and volumes and volumes of books of Jesus' teaching. It's not like we're trying to memorize the Encyclopedia Britannica. 
I mean, if we just got out the red letters of your Bible, there's only four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you could sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and just write down the teachings and instructions of Jesus. Like, you could do that. You could say, Jesus says, do not be angry with your brother or sister or you'll be subject to judgment. And you could just write that out. Like, just start on the Sermon on the Mount if you want to. And so it's finite. And this is what you would, in fact, do if you were in the yeshiva, which is the Hebrew word for school, the yeshiva of Yeshua. We would hash out how we would apply Jesus' teachings and interpretation of Scripture here and now. And so I would recommend this to you. Do this by yourself. Do it in a group if you want to. Just start with the Sermon on the Mount again, where, we, where Jesus starts out by saying, if you're angry with your brother or sister, you'll be subject to judgment. So what we know is we've got to have our anger in check. We have to figure out how we're going to be in control when we feel angry. And you could begin the process as a disciple of Jesus, begin to think through and meditate and pray on this process. You can figure out, what are the root causes of my anger? Meaning, why do I get angry? You know, I'm going along all day and it's fine here, but when this happens, whoo, man, my temper flares up. Why? Where does that come from? What part of my mind or my emotions are being set off in that moment when I'm angry? And what am I really angry about? Am I afraid of something? Or is it pride where I think I should be treated in this manner and I wasn't? What are the triggers to my anger? And my guess is, if you think through this, you could probably identify these are your triggers. You know when this happens, you tend to get angry and have an angry response. And then you can ask, well, are there alternative responses to anger? Are there other ways that I can respond in this particular situation? And how do you prepare yourself ahead of time to respond in that situation? And then what exercises do you need to adopt for your life that, is, that, that undergirds that new life behavior so it becomes your instinctive response? And who, do you, who, do you help, who helps you in that and keeps you accountable in it? And what are you going to do when you mess up because we all mess up? How do we come out of that? And you can just sit down and do that with everything. You can start with anger, and then you can go to lust, and then you can go to acts of piety and worrying, and when you want to hurt somebody who's trying to harm you. And in the end, what we're trying to do is willingly surrender and submit for a lifetime every aspect of our life, including our worldview, our paradigms, our career, our personality, our character, our ethics, our desires, our motivations, our values, our family, our ego, our sexuality, and attitudes to the authority and teachings of Jesus, our rabbi. And for just a moment, can you imagine the revolutionary force it would be if 800 all-inners and regular attenders at the Livingstones Church were unleashed on the south side of South Bend with the heart and life of Jesus? I mean, could you imagine what that would look like? I imagine the south side would experience a force of love and power of God in a way it has never seen, heard, or even imagined. It would truly be an advancement of the kingdom of God here on earth, in our neighborhoods, in our community, just like he taught us to pray. And I, at least for me, this is, what I, this is worth giving my life for. Like that idea for me, that dream for me, that, that's worth dying for. In, my, in, in, in Jesus' first Talmudim, you, you get, they all died for that cause. Like every last one of them paid with their life to see the teachings and interpretations of Jesus manifest on the earth. And I would remind you, just 12 of them changed the world. Just 12 Talmudim changed the human course of history. Imagine what 800 living stoners might do who walked out of here as genuine Talmudim of Rabboni Yeshua. May it be so. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we give you thanks that you've called us that your son has spoken right into our hearts and asked us to follow him. 
And so for those of us who've said yes to that invitation, we want to be real disciples. And we know we mess this up all the time, and so we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for your mercy. We're grateful for the way that you're always just kind of helping us along, even if it feels like we're stumbling and tripling, tripping forward. But what we, what we want, God, is to be faithful Talmudim of your son Jesus. And so we're asking this morning that you would teach us what that looks like. Empower us with your spirit that we might walk out of here and look like him. This is our prayer in his name.